You are listening to the Wealth Formula Podcast with Buck Joffrey. Get ready to change your life. Welcome, everybody. This is Buck Joffrey with the Wealth Formula Podcast coming to you from Montecito, California. Before we begin today, I want to remind you there is a website associated with this podcast called wealthformula.com. And uh, that's where you go to get a bunch of the resources that you wouldn't get by just listening to this podcast or watching it on YouTube. And uh, one of the things on there that I would like to especially mention right now is the opportunity to join our accredited investor club. Uh, This is where deal flow happens. Uh, This is where there's an opportunity to put some of these lessons to work. And um, if you go to uh, wealthformula.com, you'll see a little uh, icon there for investor club. Sign up for that and you will get onboarded. And right now we actually have an active opportunity that you can check out there as well. Go ahead and check it out, wealthformula.com and join the investor club. Now, as far as today's show, I mean, it's a little bit of a follow-up from last week. Last week, I talked about asymmetric investing and gave you an example of one of my own higher-risk bets, which is Hedera uh, with its HBAR token. You know, right now, the crypto market is still, you know, what I would say sleepy. So if you're motivated to do so, uh, you could easily probably find a, a few tokens there that are you know, right now sitting at 10% of what they cost back in the frothy market of a couple years ago and grab them. Of course, if you do that, you'd want to make sure that, you know, those tokens uh, were uh, ones that had decent projects behind them in the first place. And that would require a little bit of research. It requires a little bit of knowledge and I wouldn't do it blindly. The thing is, most people are not going to even think about doing that. In fact, Uh, those people who uh, will become new crypto investors uh, eventually will not do so until the next frothy market, uh, at which point that's, you know, the time that you're most likely to lose significant money uh, in the downturn. It's when, uh, you know, the, the point is, though, and again, I don't blame people because I think this is a human condition, no matter how rational it is to buy low and sell high. The natural human tendency is to do the opposite. Uh, and the same really goes for all assets, to be honest. And the truth is that any at any given time, something is worth buying and usually on sale. And that is what, uh, you know, that's what really sophisticated investors know. But it gets ignored because it's not the shiny object of the day, you know. When, when Bitcoin is sitting at $70,000, it is super shiny. And when people start buying it at 70, uh, it's probably not the best time to do it. Now, overall, like if you look at these, you know, something like Bitcoin, it tends to go up over time. I mean, the, the current price, the current value, it's considered low for Bitcoin, but that was the uh, high for the last cycle. So, the idea is the key is to try to buy at the, the right time. And I'm not urging you to buy cryptocurrency at all. That's not my point. I'm just trying to say you got to fight the emotional issues. Try not to make the, the mistake again of buying when things are really shiny and then sitting around until things get uh, and sitting around when things actually make sense. The hype may not be there right now, even for real estate right now, but don't ignore a good deal when you see one because there are ones coming up. Be rational, not emotional. Uh, now, getting back to cryptocurrency again, the reason I invest in it 
is because of its asymmetric risk profile. And that's what I talked about last week. But of course, I'm also investing in projects that I believe have a decent chance of success in this new world of technology because, you know, it's part of that whole Web 3.0 thing. And Web 3.0 is real. It's coming. And cryptocurrency is the only way I know how to invest in it as a retail investor. And artificial intelligence, there's another thing that, you know, Chad GPT and all that kind of stuff, there's no doubt it's going to change the world. It's going to change the world the way we live. For that one, I wish I knew. I wish I had a more direct way of understanding how to invest in it. Maybe you do. And if you do, you know, let me know because I want to know. But the way you figure out how to invest in technology, first and foremost, is by understanding it. And that's what my guest on this week's Wealth Formula podcast is actually really good at explaining. And I've done a few shows uh, on emerging technologies and finance before, but I do think that this is one of the best ones. So make sure you tune in after these messages. Welcome back to the show, everyone. Today, my guest on Wealth Formula podcast is Alex Tapscott. He is a globally recognized Reuters speaker, investor, and advisor focused on the impact of emerging technologies such as blockchain and cryptocurrencies on business, society, and government. He's also the author of a new book called Web3, Charting the Internet's Next Economic and Cultural Frontier. Welcome to the show, Alex. Thanks for having me. Interesting time we live in. And I think that one of the things that I'd, I'd like to kind of just kind of set the stage on a couple of things that we're going to talk about. And maybe you can kind of give us like sort of some short definition. I know most people have heard these buzzwords. You've heard of Web3, you've heard of AI and that kind of thing. But maybe we could just kind of start out defining what is Web3 and then kind of talking about AI. What exactly is Web3? Why is it such a buzzword? Yeah, well, every uh, so often a new technology emerges that transforms the economic order uh, of things pretty profoundly. We've seen it with the internet and before that, the television, the radio, the transistor. These technologies generally tend to leave a very big footprint and change the world in, in ways that are sometimes unexpected. And today we're in this kind of interesting moment where there is not one, but at least five or six new technologies all kind of emerging at once. Artificial intelligence, the internet of things, biotechnology, virtual and augmented reality, uh, blockchain and web three. All of these are not separate technologies, but are actually related. And I, I think that Web3 is probably the least understood. And I think it's because it's often associated with crypto assets, right. which are an important part of the story, but are only one dimension. Really yep. what's happening is that the, the web and with it, the internet are, are entering a new era. And this new era of the web is going to have a really big impact on society, on the economy and on business as prior eras of the internet did as well. So I think in order to understand Web 3, it's useful to know what Web 1 and Web 2 are. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> these are yeah, these are what they call antonyms, right? They're, they're words that come into effect after the fact. You know, there, there was, we didn't call it Web 1 when it was Web 1. We just called it the web, right? <laughs> yeah. And same yeah. for Web 2. So the internet and the web are actually two different things. And I think it's important to start there. So the internet was developed in the 1960s and 70s, in part by the US Department of Defense, as they were trying to build a decentralized communication network that would basically stay up and running in the event of a Soviet nuclear attack. At the time, every communication was kind of running through one central node, and that made defense planners really, really nervous. Right. And for 20 years or so, the web was kind of a tool that, or sorry, the internet was kind of a tool that was used by people in government, academics, technologists, et cetera. But it wasn't until the invention of this thing called the World Wide Web that the web became something regular people used. People were listening to the show and also that businesses started to use as a very powerful new tool. And the first era of the web 
what we now call Web 1. And what I think a lot of people remember as the dot-com era was really kind of like a, a medium for the presentation of information. What I, by that, what I mean simply is that you logged onto the web, you went to a website, you could consume content, but you couldn't interact with it. You couldn't really upload your own stuff. The web wasn't really being used as a, a tool for communication or collaboration. It was very wonderful. Just a catalog. Yeah, exactly. Catalog. Kind of like kind of like things that came before, actually, yeah. uh, like TV yeah. and radio. And there's the this concept in design that people design stuff with the past in mind because that's all they know. Sure. But also because maybe that makes it easier for people to use the new thing, right? They don't they don't feel like it's so uh, alien. So if you think about the first era of the web, you know, you could use the web to read the sports scores and check the weather and look up classifieds and, you know, search Botanica online and so on and so forth. It was really a way to consume information, but that was kind of all it did. Um, in the early 2000s to mid 2000s, the combination of evolving user behavior plus new tech um, led to this creation of this new web called Web2. And Web2, not only could you use the web to consume information, but you could upload your own stuff. You could basically create what's called user-generated content, which is why Web2 is referred to in tech circles as the read-write web. Not only can you read information, but you can write to the web. You can upload your own content. Now, in the early days of Web2, a lot of people had high hopes that the this new web was going to be a tool that would allow the masses to collaborate online and to create value um, outside of traditional power structures, outside of traditional companies and governments and so forth. And in a way, it did that to a limited degree with projects like, say, Wikipedia. But in general, uh, most of the value that was captured in Web2 uh, ended up accruing to big, powerful platforms and corporations. So today, the biggest companies in the world are not industrial age companies or banks, they're technology firms. And those technology firms have built enormous value on user-generated content or data. Right. And so basically, this- you can communicate, you can go back and forth, you can exchange ideas, but at the end of the day, there's still a central sort of big brother in the room, right? Yeah, exactly. And because all of the data and information passes through Big Brother, Big Brother's the one that gets to monetize it. So they make all the money. So there's a lot, there's several problems with that. You know, number one is that that data is clearly worth a lot of money. The market capitalization of these companies, their their value is in the trillions of dollars. But also that data could end up in the wrong hands and undermine your privacy in, in some pretty you know disturbing kinds of ways, right? So Web 2, the promise of the web kind of went unfulfilled. And now the internet, internet is entering a new era, which is now known as Web 3. So Web 3 is the read-write-own web. Not only can you use the web as a way to access information, read, not only can you use the web as a way to share information and to collaborate and build community and so forth, right? But now you can use the web as a platform to own digital goods, to have digital property rights in a way that frankly wasn't possible before. Now that means on a practical level, being able to own assets like money and stocks and bonds and other financial assets digitally, but also to be able to own your own identity and own your own data and decide how it's used and whether it gets pay, uh, monetized or not. And so all of these new, uh, this new sort of ownership layer for the web is something that didn't exist before. Before we had to rely basically on the privilege of some intermediary to basically establish trust in transactions. And now we have a way to do that uh, that's native to the internet. And uh, in the same way that the first and second era of the web were really powerful tools for, for business, I think that web three is also going to have a huge impact on on the economy and on the world. 
Yeah. And then what's funny, Alex, is that Web3 was like the buzzword, especially as crypto was in a bull market and everybody was learning about the underlying technology. And it sounded like everybody was all engaged with this. But then the next thing that happened was all of a sudden there was chat GPT and everybody started talking about AI. And then it's almost like Web3 just kind of disappeared. And obviously it didn't. But talk a little bit about this role of AI now, is it part and part of this machine or evolution of Web3 or not, or completely separate? How do you see them married? Well, I think it's separate, but related. I think we're at the early stage of a sort of a second digital age where all of those technologies I mentioned are kind of emerging all at once. Now, what's interesting about technologies like AI or virtual reality or robotics is that they feel like overnight success stories. The ChatGPT moment in December of last year was hard to deny, right? It was like a light bulb went off. But they, in reality, have been evolutions that have been decades in the making. Before we go off in that direction, we better define it because some people are just hearing artificial intelligence and, you know, they may have been hearing these words, but I want to make sure that we actually kind of catch people up if they don't really know what the big, what this is in the first place. Well, that's a great question. So, I mean, it depends on who you ask, but in general, I think what people are talking about is a generalized AI. You know, computers have been doing what people have been doing for lots of, you know, for for as long as computers have been around, you know, data processing, rote computing, basically number crunching. But the idea was, could they convincingly mimic or improve upon what a human being is capable of doing? And that's something that was first defined by Alan Turing, the inventor of the right. computer. The Turing test, the, right? The very popular movie, right? The Imitation Game. Alan Turing helped to crack the Nazi codes, the Enigma machine. But he also created this thing called the Turing test, which basically said, like, how, you know, can a computer mimic a person and fool a human being into thinking that they're a person? And in his mind, that was sort of a sign of generalized artificial intelligence. Not that, you know, you two plus two equals four, I guess that's intelligence, but that they could actually create the experience or create the an illusion of or you know mimic a person <laughs> and you know i'm not an ai expert but in general that's i think what people think about when they think of generalized ai so chat gpt is so significant not because of what it does in fact the large language models these are the things that are that have been training on data to create this this experience have been around for a few years but uh, ChatGPT was the first to put it into a consumer-facing application that the average person could instantly realize the significance of. You know, you mentioned that you, before the show started, that you're a surgeon. I mean, one of the things that ChatGPT does pretty well is it comes up with poetry and songs and, and jokes <laughs> in a way that I think is kind of very satisfying. Like, so you can ask it to, you know, tell you a surgeon, a joke about surgeon, a surgeon you know, name Buck who lives in wherever and, you know, this, that, and the other, and it comes up with something that you're like, oh, you know, that's pretty good. So anyway, this is a, a technology that obviously, obviously like when new technologies first emerge, they're mistaken as sort of toys or novelties. And in a way, ChatGPT for all its significance, I think for most people still a bit of a novelty. And that's, that's been true for almost every form of technology. You know, personal computers were viewed as a novelty. Cars were viewed as a novelty and so forth. So that's something that happens early on in, in these cycles. Anyway, I'm, I digress. But the point is, all of these new technologies are going to converge on one another. In the same way that, you know, in the 80s and 90s, you know, cell phones and computing and mobility and networking and data centers and all these things kind of converged into yeah. uh, the web as we know it today. I think that we're going to see something 
similar. Another thing that's worth pointing out, though, is that, as I said earlier, these are all sort of overnight success stories that have been decades in the making. You know, Alan Turing created the Turing test 80 years ago. Yeah. And uh, AI itself has gone through a lot of periods of uh, peaks and valleys, to, to put it sure. kindly. You know, there was tons of AI research in the 1960s, a very famous research report, 1965, that said in 20 years, uh, AI will be able to replicate everything a human being does. So that would have been 1985, which is a year before I was born. So uh, that hasn't happened as far as, no. as, far as I'm aware. Yeah. Right? Right. And uh, that led to AI winters and summers and periods of peaks and valleys. So I, I view what's happening in Web3 similarly, which is that it's true that on the margin, there's probably there are probably individuals who are sort of like tech tourists that were in the Web3, what we now think of as the Web3 world that pivoted to some other new sort of area in technology. But in general, the people who are focused on building this this industry haven't left and are, are more excited now than they ever have been before. And I think that in many ways, these technologies will, will manage to converge on each other. So let's talk a little bit more about AI, artificial intelligence. Some people are gonna call it machine learning, whatever. Where do you stand on this? There seems to be quite a bit of uh, risk reward debate in this area. The concept being that like, okay, I mean, I guess some fairly high profile people are warning about the, the, the potential of AI ultimately, you know, resulting in, 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 in the, the end of civilization as we know. Right. First of all, you know, maybe if, if you would, and on a broad surface, just kind of explain what they're worried about and where, what your thoughts are on this. Well, I think that that argument falls into one of like three different camps, right? Mm -hmm. So camp number one is the most extreme version, which is generalized artificial intelligence becomes self-aware, realizes that for it to continue to thrive, it needs a, you know, a healthy planet or something and says the problem is human beings, we'd be better off without them. And then goes on some systematic killing rampage. Right. <laughs> that's right. going to happen. Like that's, this huh. is like people have seen Terminator too many times. Yeah. It yeah. makes for a great flick, but it's like not, that's not the reality. There are other scenarios that are maybe a bit more plausible. One scenario is even though every major technology revolution in history has created more wealth than it's destroyed and created more jobs than it has destroyed, perhaps this time is different. And maybe AI truly does disintermediate people or make them obsolete. And yeah. maybe that leads to uh, mass unemployment and social decay and to political upheaval. That's yeah. a scenario which is slightly more plausible. And then there's a third scenario, which is that AI creates abundance because it improves productivity and makes the world um, wealthier. But that wealth is not shared equally and accrues to, you know, the shareholders of a few companies or founders of businesses and everyone else is worse off. And then there's another scenario where, well, maybe the bounty is redistributed, but people have lost some innate humanness. You know, people are not the ones writing scripts or making art or doing poetry. And so even though AI has created a lot of money, it's robbed us of some human essence um, the reason, raison d'etre, like a reason for being. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, you know, I, I think all of those scenarios are unlikely. I, I really do. I think that AI is a tool like any other human created thing that is going to improve productivity and is going to create more jobs than it destroys and is going to lead to new kinds of human flourishing. 
I also, I'm not trying to be like Pollyannish about it. I think there's lots of problems that we need to carefully address and understand. But in general, the view is I'm optimistic. And, and I think that that's bore, been borne out by every invention of the human mind. You know, even nuclear power, <laughs> you know, was used initially as a, a weapon of mass destruction, the most horrific thing you could possibly imagine, but, but has never been used since and actually became a source of power. So like in general, I think of technologies as being a, po- a net positive for society. Uh, another thing that's worth pointing out is that every time this a new technology emerges, it's met with a moral panic. Now, I mentioned crypto as part of Web3, and what it's important for people to understand that when we talk about crypto, we're not talking about a dozen different kinds of money that people are using to like you know fund crime or whatever. We're simply talking about a new medium for value, a way to move assets peer-to-peer online. In the same way that the internet allowed us to move information online, Web3 allows you to move value. That value can be money, it can be financial assets, it can be virtual assets, it can be data, whatever. So to me, that's a really powerful toolkit that could be used to improve human flourishing. But everyone's fixated on a use case and is worried about you know bad actors. And that this is the kind of moral panic that you see every time that there's a new technology. Doesn't mean there shouldn't be rules to prevent criminals from doing things that are illegal. Doesn't mean we shouldn't consider how we regulate the use of AI. But in general, we need to be very open-minded towards technology innovation because the proof is in the pudding. The track record says that these are things that you want to embrace. Right, right. So if you're looking at this from the standpoint of how it's going to affect a Web3 and AI are going to affect culture and society, obviously, as investors, you kind of want to look at that and say, what are the implications of that? Like, what should I be looking at big picture? Not that you're necessarily, you know, I'm I'm asking for like an investment advice thing, but obviously, if you saw, you know, cell phones coming down the pipe, you wouldn't be buying a bunch of phone booths. In fact, I remember my dad buying phone booths in the 80s, which is kind of hilarious, but he, but that was like, it was a pretty profitable thing, I guess. But what do you see, what are some of the things that you potentially see as large scale changes in the business space, whether that relates to banks, which it's hard for me to really, it's hard for me to really envision banks going, going down without swinging pretty hard. They're pretty powerful entities. And when we talk about financial, you know, we talk about decentralization, finance or DeFi, I think that that's kind of wishful thinking in many ways, in my opinion. But how, you know, how does DeFi, you know, in reality, what what effects do you think that Web3 has on that? What effects do you think are going to come, if any, from the AI on on large businesses that maybe you've been thinking about and that might be worth thinking about for investors in the macro picture? Well, it's a great question and one that I think about a lot, actually. Yeah, it's true that in the 90s, there were lots of companies people thought were great investments, you know, companies like Kodak and Borders and JCPenney and Blockbuster and others. Mm-hmm. You know, they were companies that had loyal customers and had big footprints and were dominant in their fields. But what they all sort of had was a big blind spot. And in that blind spot was the web, first era of the right. web. In some way, they were about to be impacted, some worse than others, some completely disintermediated, like, say, Blockbuster or diminished to a point where they were tiny, like the, you know, the photography companies, but in general, they were all going to be impacted. So that's, you know, looking back with a web one lens on the nineties, we can say, oh yeah, you know, you shouldn't have, (laughs) you shouldn't have held those names, but it was hard in the moment, I think for a lot of people to imagine that companies like 
Kodak could be could go bankrupt, right? Well, it was uh, even hard for Kodak to imagine that. Well, yeah, it was. <laughs> well, I mean, I don't want to get off track, but you know, Kodak is like these are classic examples of companies where they actually had all the they built all the tech to dominate in the yeah. digital age, but they chose not to, and that that they fell victim to this thing called the innovator's dilemma, where like Kodak had the best digital photography technology in the world. And they chose not to introduce the product because they were worried about film sales, you know, physical film sales. So they didn't want to kill the golden goose. And in a way, that's a highly rational thing for businesses to do. You don't want to like disintermediate yourself mm -hmm. prematurely. <laughs> so, yeah. so a lot of businesses find themselves in a very tricky situation um, as it relates to innovation. I agree with you, Buck, that I don't think banks are going away, but it's possible that they become diminished in importance and in size and in profitability. You know, there are lots of companies from the PC age that are still around, you know, IBM, Hewlett Packard, Dell, but they're no longer the biggest corporations in the world, right? The value that was created from the web, they missed, they sort of missed the web, they missed mobile. And so the web and mobile created companies worth 10 times as much. And that is something I just see happening here where, you know, is JP Morgan going to zero or something? This is an investment advice. I'm just sort of uh, yeah. hypothetical. Like, yeah. I don't think so. <laughs> There's no, no chance actually no. for so many reasons we don't, we won't get into here, but like will more and more value trade hands digitally and not through centralized institutions. And will they capture less of fewer rents and less fees, fewer fees in general in the economy as more and more value moves to a digitally native medium. Yeah. In the same way that you know, a lot of newspapers and legacy media businesses captured less and less revenue from the flow of information as more and more information went online. So like, I think that's something you can draw a pretty clear line between the two. And I think that there are also you know, plenty of examples of companies today who could embrace this in the same way that a lot of businesses embraced the web. And in fact, you know, savvy entrepreneurs and, and, and executives have been pivoting for centuries, <laughs> you know, like Cornel Cornelius Vanderbilt, like built his fortune with steamships, right? but realized that the railroad was the future and yeah. divested of all of his steamships. Yeah. Like by the time he was in his 60s, 70s, he, he had no steamships. He was all in on rail because he realized like that was the future of transportation. So you know, like lots of legacy people can embrace the new thing. And I think that there are some really interesting examples of companies today that do that with web with Web3's toolkit of digital assets, peer-to-peer -peer value transfer. And I I could point out several, but you know, like Nike or MasterCard, a company that you might argue is going to be potentially disrupted by new ways to move value peer-to-peer -to -peer or to represent ownership digitally. But they're embracing that change and trying to stay ahead of it through innovation, through, through investments in Web3, stable coins, you know, basically digital money backed by dollars, all these new kinds of novel creations that have only been made possible because of Web3. So there is this paradox in a way of, of the, the meaning of Web3 and which is sort of disentanglement with a big brother or a, a central figure, the government or Facebook or whatever. But then you also have this impending rise of the decentralized central bank coin. Digital currency. <laughs> digital currencies. Yeah. Which actually seems like, you know, I think I call it a paradox because I think one of the big worries there is that, well, does that mean then that they, you know, they know where every dollar is going and that you have zero privacy and that, you know, what kind of 
what kind of implications does that have on your privacy? So maybe if you would, what is your take on the decentralized central bank digital currencies? What, why, why are central banks thinking about this? Is it, you know, from my perspective, what I've thought about several times is that like, okay, most money is digital already, right? So are they just, is this just a software upgrade? A or B, is this an attempt at, you know, or is this more than an attempt of just making wires more efficient? Is it a way of potentially taking more control and being able to track the flow of money more? What What's your take on that? Well, you're right that Web3 starts with the premise that the internet ought to be more decentralized. And, and by that, I mean that intermediaries should have less control. And that means that internet users become internet owners in a way, owners of the services and applications that they use, owners of their assets and stewards of their own sort of identity and data. So that's sort of the premise of Web3. But blockchains, which are the technology that sort of underpin all of this, it's kind of a clunky word, um, literally. But basically, they're a way to express value in purely digital medium. And so a lot of central bankers are really interested in the idea of using blockchains as a way to create a digital dollar. Now, you're right that we access financial services digitally. And you know most of the money that we think of is numbers on a screen, whether it's your phone or your PC. But they're not purely digital dollars, per se. A digital dollar is a, a digital bearer instrument, which basically means that if you hold it, you hold it and no one else holds it. Like in the same way that if you had like a $10 bill, a bank yeah. note, you know, it doesn't exist in two places. That money only exists in your wallet. And if mm -hmm. you use it to buy something or you give it to someone, they have it and you do not have it. That doesn't exist in central bank digital dollars. It does exist in stable coins, in Bitcoin and all these other kinds of new novel assets, but it doesn't yet exist for, for central bank digital currencies. And in my opinion, it may never exist for the reasons that you've described which is that by ceding control and letting people hold this money and move it peer to peer, then they won't be able to track how it's used quite as well. They still will be able to track it pretty well because everything on a blockchain is available for all to see. It's sort of like a public right. uh, ledger, but it doesn't mean they couldn't cancel your money or require you to spend it or you know, devalue it instantly. You know, So there's all these things that it couldn't do if it was truly digitally native, like if it was really like you know uh, the, the the assets that exist today, and for those and so for those reasons, I'm not sure they will ever do it in that way. I also think that if they decide to, if central banks do decide to create a digital money, that um, basically it can be used as a tool for surveillance and control. That they're going to face a lot of opposition, legal opposition and and consumer opposition from people who don't really want that, like or or view it as an infringement on their sort of rights to privacy and freedom of trade and so forth. So I, I think that I'm pretty much skeptical <laughs> of the view that we're going to see central bank digital currencies really anytime soon. And I think what's probably more likely is that we see money creation happening at the commercial level, which sounds like a whole bunch of gobbledygook, but that's basically how money works today already. Like you put a dollar in the bank, the bank goes and creates $10 of loans on the other side. And by doing so, they're creating more money, right? That's called fractional fractional, excuse me, fractional reserve banking. Right. Um, stable coins don't do that. They're back dollar for dollar. But in effect, mm -hmm. if you deposit money and someone creates a digital asset on the other side, 
they've effectively created a kind of a new kind of money. It's backed one for one, but it's still a digital version mm -hmm. of that money. Mm -hmm. And I just see that being the more popular medium of exchange for transactions than something that's created by the central bank. But I could be wrong about that. <laughs> it's yeah. just a it's just a view based on all the data. I, I will say that you know central bank digital currencies have been the killer app for blockchains, according to central bankers, for for many years. But as far as I can tell, there is no imminent launch of any central bank digital currency planned in any democracy in the next little while. Yeah. There's certainly, it sounds like there's been a lot of talk about it. I mean, certainly even just talking to Mance Harmon, who, who I interviewed a few times, who is part of the Hedera Net, Hedera Hashcraft. Sure. Yeah. And, and Mance, they've, they've been, you know, talking to multiple countries about, you know, about, about this technology and, and then playing a role in it. So well, I, I will say that, that there are over 50 central bank digital currency projects underway. Yeah. And the Fed has, has one. The Canadian Central Bank has one, the ECB. So some of the biggest central banks in the world. But I just think that there's a big difference between a proof of concept or a, or a pilot project and something right. that's, that's deployed commercially. And like, there are examples of, of governments being leaders when it comes to technology, financial technology. Um, you know, the Fed ACH system, uh, when it was developed in the 1970s, was, was cutting edge. But that was 50 years ago. So, but it's possible that you know the Fed could do something similar here, here, and be the be the pioneer. But I think they're more likely to see how it plays out in the private sector yeah. first before right. making a big leap into this space. Makes sense. Well, good stuff here, Alex. The book is called Web Three: Charting the Internet's Next Economic and Cultural Frontier. I uh, imagine that is available pretty much anywhere you get books, right? Anywhere you get books, it's at September 19th, but it's available for pre-order now. As yeah. my uh, publicist would like me to say, the best way to buy the book is in massive volume. Okay, got it. And it's also, you've got alextapscott.com if people yeah. want to learn more. Alex, thanks so much for being on Well Formula Podcast. Yeah, thanks, Buck. Really appreciate it. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the show, everyone. I uh, hope you enjoyed it. And again, keep learning, keep doing some research you know, make some wise decisions. You know, some of these things that you can invest in right now are, you know, they're, if you wanted to, if you wanted to get involved with crypto, you know, now would be the time to do it probably more than uh, doing doing it when things are at an all-time high again, right? And, and, and now is the time that you want to start really paying attention to see what's coming through, even though uh, on the real estate market, you know, there's, uh, there's, you know, rising interest rate mortgage rates and you have some, some distress in the market. I mean, now's the time to actually look for an opportunity to invest in. Anyway, that's my message for this week. That's it for me this week on uh, Wealth Formula Podcast. This is Buck Joffrey signing off. Thank you for listening to the Wealth Formula Podcast. Visit us on the web at wealthformula.com. The information contained in this podcast are opinions, not fact. As always, Consult your own financial team before making any investment. See you next time.